the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Hello. Welcome back. I hope you're all doing well. Happy Brexit Day. It is supposed to be Brexit Day. It was supposed to be Brexit Today Day. Today was supposed to be... Uh, what was? No, it wasn't Independence Day, according to Nigel Farage. Independence Day, according to Nigel Farage, was the day after the Brexit referendum. Yes. But uh, Britain is still not... Independent. Independent. Um... Yeah. A vassal state of the European Union, the United States of Europe. Yeah. We haven't taken back control yet. No. Um, control is still lost. Control is still lost. We thought we should discuss Brexit today. Uh, because there hasn't been enough discussion of Brexit. Given this momentous yes. occasion. Um, we've struggled a little bit to... To decide what to say mm. and how to say it, um, because we have lots of kind of diverse and sort of disparate thoughts and feelings ab- about it, and no one really knows what's going on either. So, mm. you know, for us to like pretend to have come to some conclusion is disingenuous yes. um, and not particularly useful. Shall we start with how we are experiencing? The last few weeks. Yeah, sort of uh, embodied knowledge yeah. of Brexit. Yeah. What has what has Brexit meant for you? What has Brexit meant for me? Uh, it, I am so bored. Yeah. Like, I would rather watch all three Hobbit movies, the extended director's cut versions, on loop, frankly, than hear more about Brexit. Like, I'm that bored. Mm. And I'm not normally bored by mm. political news. I, mm. I'm mm. I'm pretty interested and engaged. Mm. But I think I've gotten to the point where I feel like any information that I take in mm. will prove to be useless mm. in a matter of hours or days. Mm. And so why bother expending mm. the sort of intellectual labor on information that is already becoming outdated? Mm. You've had an opposite... Yeah, I'm, much. I'm fascinated. I, I'm addicted to TV coverage of Parliament. As we discuss it, I've got the BBC live reporting page open. Um, I am in exceptionally interested in the nitty-gritty of political procedure and parliamentary procedure. And um, we're talking about sort of if we, if we try to separate... Uh, how we think and how we feel about any particular issue. I'm finding it really difficult to concentrate on how I feel about Brexit and the impending chaos, impending doom of, of the nation as a whole, uh, because I'm concentrating on how what I think about all the various um, positions, the various um, um, responses on, on, all, on all sides of the political spectrum. And 
in our house I um try every chance I get trying to watch um watch the news my wife Claire refuses to watch anything because it makes her too stressed so she's concentrating entirely on the feel of it uh I gather things aren't all that different in your household no but I don't really mind I mean I'm mm. every time every time the the speaker says anything I am entertained so it it doesn't take that much to mm-hmm. to make mm. me mm. giggle a little mm. bit <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I'm 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 interested in in the politics of it, and I was I was interested in the politics mm. of it before, and I am, of course, like mm. you know, research speaking wise, very interested in in Northern Ireland and the backstop and the border in Ireland f- for kind of because because it fits with mm. some kind of wider issues that yeah. I teach and write about. Um, but in terms of the nitty gritty of what's happening in the House of Commons right now. Mm. I I just sort of feel like it's futile. Mm. So the knowledge is useless and I am so lazy mm. about about like learning stuff and wanting to know stuff. I'm very utilitarian about mm-hmm. it. So until there's information that I can actually use yeah. and yeah. put to work, it's all to me just just a, a kind of an exercise in wasted emotional mm. labor, which is a really pretentious way of putting it. Well, no, I'm, I mean, I don't think it is necessarily, and even if it was, it wouldn't matter. Um, I guess... <laughs> yeah, we have, a, we have a critical theory yeah. podcast. <laughs> I guess, I mean, you said about how we're struggling to come up with a lens through which to frame frame our chat today, and we sort of came up with the idea of uncertainty and... and uh, how to deal with uh, a period where the levels of uncertainty increase to the point of a crisis? How does how does the nation as a whole deal with the fact that we don't know if in two weeks' time we can or three weeks' time or whenever it is that we don't know if we'll be able to travel to Europe? We don't know if there'll be food in the supermarkets. Uh, and how does one? turn uncertainty into a kind of narrative if if by narrative we mean a, a thing that we we may use to make sense of events as it were uh, when the overriding um, overriding feel of the time is uncertainty how does how do we narrativize that um, I guess uh, before going further you mentioned the backstop do you want to explain because I don't know if explain the backstop do I don't know if any yeah. all of our listeners will know what the backstop is. Backstop, uh, my favorite Brexit buzzword. Um, it, it, yeah, the backstop essentially refers to the the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is a, a kind of geographically speaking a very small tract of land, uh, but hugely important over the last century. Um, that border was drawn in the early twentieth century as part of the agreement to partition. Uh, Ireland, when the Republic of Ireland became independent, um, f- after that period, for a couple of decades, things were kind of uh, okay. Um, but in the middle of the 20th century, of course, the troubles began, and the troubles began not just because of the existence of the border, but also because of kind of um, sort of state-imposed policies around housing segregation and discrimination and that kind of thing. And the border became a really important 
kind of militarized zone in the UK. Mm. It was it, it was for a number of decades a war zone. The British military was deployed there. Um, there were really serious kind of uh, trade regulations, and there mm. were um, uh, points of entry and checkpoints, and um, so the the border was an extremely violent and kind of closed mm. space. Um, after the Good Friday Agreement, which was um, the agreement that kind of is, is credited with ending the sort of the structural troubles, mm-hmm. um, there are still kind of like pockets of, mm-hmm. of troubles-like kind of activity. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like functioning government, Northern Ireland is able to govern itself in a way that it, it wasn't 30 years ago. Um, and the 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 country has has basically managed to like politically and economically rebuild itself um, in in a really amazing and, and mm. quite fundamental way. Um, the The border has to be open in order for that situation to continue, and that means freedom of movement between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, and it means freedom of movement of goods as well. Mm. So the border essentially doesn't doesn't exist in terms of checkpoints or uh, fences or walls. Mm. It's just a, a kind of administrative boundary now. Um, and anyone who has kind of uh, access to the UK and the Republic of Ireland uh, can travel across the border. Uh, people use the border on mm. a daily basis. They, they you know, work across the border. They have family across the border. Um, in terms of economics, right, food and goods travel across the the border hourly. And um, the backstop essentially would keep that border open, uh, which in terms of like hard Brexit strategy and hard Brexit discourse, it fundamentally undermines the the point of Brexit, which is to to close the borders entirely to both people and stuff. Um, this kind of rhetoric of taking back mm. control and the backstop there's lots of kind of uh, arrangements around how long that border would remain open if it would remain open forever if it would remain open for some period of time um, if it would be governed by you know like smart border technologies mm. or whatever I mean you know cursory glance at the academic literature on smart border technologies demonstrates that it, it does not work very well um, and you know it's at best farcical, at worst mm. extremely violent and dangerous. Mm. So um, the, that's like the long story mm. long of, about that, the border. It's one of the kind of shorthand mm. sort of things that, that politicians have been throwing around. And, and the reason why it matters particularly is that after Theresa May decided completely of her own volition to call a call for general election in 2017, assuming that she would get a huge majority and would be able to push her idea of Brexit through Parliament with, without opposition, essentially. As it turns out, not only did she not get a huge majority, she didn't get a majority at all. Uh, she is in power with a, in a minority government, which has what's called a relationship of confidence and supply uh, from a party called the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, who are are existentially invested in maintaining the unity of the United Kingdom so that no daylight is allowed in terms of policy between Northern Ireland and the rest of Great Britain, uh, rest of the United Kingdom, uh, I should say. Um, but because the DUP are needed in order for, for any government deal to be put through, the DUP are fundamentally opposed to the backstop 
not because they prefer a closed border necessarily, but because they are worried that the backstop would inevitably mean that uh, Northern Ireland was effectively a part of the European Union, whereas the rest of the United Kingdom wasn't. And it's that sort of second invisible, in, in some senses, border between the the island of Ireland, if you like, the Republic and, and, and Northern Ireland, and the rest of rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, that's that invisible border is what worries the DUP. Yeah, I mean, and and it's not it it's not an unfounded concern. Um, there has been a lot of discussion mm. in Ireland mm. amongst people from the Republic of Ireland and from Northern Ireland around the future of Ireland as an island and what. Brexit will do and there are people in Ireland who have predicted that certain certain forms of Brexit will cause a reunification of Ireland at some point in the future um, either for political reasons because the troubles flare up again yeah. or for kind of economic reasons because it makes more sense and, and you can see this in the in the conservative movement and across Britain as a whole where Brexitism, if you like, is coming up against unionism. And people, politicians, parties are having to decide whether they are primarily a Brexit party or primarily a unionist party. And uh, the longer this goes on, it's looking more and more like the Conservative Party, uh, or certainly sections of the Conservative Party, are more interested in Brexit than they are interested in maintaining the union. Uh, and the DUP is the exact opposite. I'm more interested in maintaining the union than they are in, in Brexiting. Yes, which is a really fascinating... It is really fascinating, and I think what's interesting about about the election mm. is all of a sudden Northern Ireland entered Westminster. And historically, Northern Ireland has been of even less concern to Westminster than Wales and Scotland. And um, Northern Ireland is, you know, generally speaking considered by not just the kind of governing elite in britain but by a lot of people in kind of england and scotland and wales to be a backwater mm. to be um a sort of uncivilized region of insignificance mm. a kind of place that you forget about um it's so small geographically and considered to be very small population wise um, and a lot of people actually have a, a kind of lingering fear of mm. Northern Ireland mm. if they grew up during the Troubles or remember um, remember a time where the Troubles was was part of the, the kind of daily mm. news. And um, I'm always amazed at the, the complete lack of literacy amongst mm. British people who aren't from Northern Ireland about, mm. about Northern mm. Ireland. And so mm. what's really fascinating is all of a sudden mm. this little place mm. of huge geopolitical significance is is getting attention um not necessarily the attention that i would like <laughs> it to have um but it's i find it really really interesting that people are suddenly talking about northern mm. ireland mm. um not just as a war zone mm. um yeah and, and just following on from that i think i think one of the things that brexit one of the one of the most immediate ways in which Brexit and the last three years, because it is almost three years now since the referendum, um, that one of the ways in which this uncertainty has manifested itself is is quite a um, 
quite an unprecedented, I think, uh, realigning of political identities in a way that I certainly don't know of an, another moment in British history where this has happened, where if you think Britain is, and for most of its history, has been a two-party system, uh, at the moment it is two parties in terms of Labour and Conservative, there are a number of smaller parties, but whenever you have a two-party system, the overriding uh, hegemonic political identity is based on those two parties, right? So in Britain, are you a Labour? Are you Conservative? In America, are you Democrat? Are you Republican? But for the first time, really, in Britain, those identity categories are being trumped for a new one. Are you Leave or are you Remain? So leavers, if you like, across parties have more in common with each other than they do with Remainers in their own party. And Remainers across parties have more in common with each other. And you, you see these shifting marriages and shifting relationships of convenience coming across through or between otherwise quite unlikely allies. Yes, a very good example of this is the the new the new breakaway party that has formed. We shouldn't laugh. Eventually they will be in charge. They're not gonna be in charge. Eventually one of them will have control over our lives in some capacity. But they have just announced their new name. So they broke away uh a couple of weeks ago, uh, yeah. some people from Labour, some people from Tories, from the Conservatives, fought, uh, came together to form what they called at the time was the Independent Group, uh, short for TIG, uh, uh, or sh- sh- the short form being TIG. I've heard BBC describe them as Tiggers, which I think is, is wonderful. But today, today's news, they've just announced their new party, which is called Change UK. Uh, which has the uh, wonderful added convenience of meaning nothing. Uh, Change to what? Change from what? Uh, make America great again. Oh my gosh. I mean, it is, it's classic, classic meaningless jargon mm. in order to mm. avoid having to take any sort Brexit of means Brexit. decisive action. And that has been, that has been the, the kind of, the general standard, I think, over the last mm. few years when dealing with Brexit. What is interesting, when the British government has has been governing mm. on other things, they've mm. passed laws and mm. stuff, I, I think. Um, they've passed some laws. Mm. Not as many, though. No. And one of the, the overriding narratives in Europe, in the European press, is that the UK has been obsessing about Brexit, of course, and the UK has been dealing with Brexit, the European Union has been continuing mm. to govern and continuing to pass laws mm. and continuing to make decisions. And the British government is less able mm. to do so. Mm. Part of that is because the Prime Minister has less power after the election that she called a couple of years ago. But also part of that is because so much of the civil service has mm. been redirected towards and built up specifically mm. towards dealing with Brexit specifically. Mm-hmm. And so we, w- there's been less in the way of, of governing. Mm. I mean, we, we don't have an effective government at the moment, right? Theresa May, the Prime Minister, has announced that if her deal is passed, then she will resign, uh, which is an interesting um, negotiating tactic. Uh, but it, 
it speaks to to the fact that she had nothing else to offer uh, she has no power left she has no credibility left the deal even even with the added incentive of her resignation doesn't look like it's going to pass um, there has one of the many uh, examples of brexit precipitating unprecedented set of uh, uh, events is uh, a transfer of control between government and parliament so parliament has now taken over the order of business if you like which historically has been the preserve of the government in order to uh, debate suggest votes on alternative possibilities that that are beyond and uh, different from the government uh, proposed uh, deal to clarify when we say government mm. in the US government and Congress are kind of used synonymously yeah. in the UK government refers specifically to the Prime Minister and her team her yes. cabinet and they are the kind of the center of power in yes. Uh, Westminster, yes. and then the House of Commons is the wider set of MPs and House of Lords, and yeah. House of Lords, and they provide the kind of checks and balances yeah. and the the uh, push and pull. Yeah. So, so in some in some ways, the the relationship between Parliament and government in Britain is not all that different from the relationship between the House and the Senate and the White House. It, it, the job the job they're there to do is not all that different in, in other words it's the legislature acting as checks and balances against the executive uh, in in terms of the division of government yes yes the difference is in the United States the cabinet are not members no. of no. Congress yes but here the government are are made up of MPs yes who are sitting mm -hmm. members of Parliament none of whom are experts in anything. Um, in the United States, of course, we have a cabinet. Currently, there's a number of posts that aren't filled, but normally in the United States, you have yeah. a cabinet made up of kind of people chosen by the executive who are exp experts in something. Um, well, what is, the, what is the executive an expert in what? at the moment? <laughs> Golf? <laughs> Yeah. Deals? Yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, Big Macs. So, but there, but there is a little bit of a, a kind of semantic difference that yes. I think you know. Yeah. Is worth highlighting. Mm. But there's a real. There is a feeling of uncertainty because, mm. and there's also a sort of intellectual uncertainty. Mm. No one knows what's happening. Uh, the government has come up against its own rules and boundaries. So the government now doesn't really, can't really sort of follow mm. the law mm. in a sense mm. because there isn't, there isn't a framework mm. for them to use. So the uncertainty now, we've kind of hit the uncertainty wall mm. and everyone is sort of stumbling around in the dark a little bit. And... They start to argue when this happens. We've seen a, a rise in this kind of language of, of like meaningless jargon mm. as a way of like like filling gaps or mm. you, as a mm. band-aid mm. to kind of cover up the fact mm. that there's no clear, decisive mm. policy solution mm. or evidence or whatever. Mm. And so you have, um, you know, like weird, vague language being thrown around mm. and not very much being 
done no. about it, which which mm. feels like the the whole kind of purpose of the independence party mm. or the independent party. Yes, the you name. mean the Change UK? The Change UK, UK yes. party, not not the UK Independence Party. Yeah, not UKIP, but yeah. they also have are surrounded by uncertainty as well. They've had well, a number of leaders and, and they've fallen apart. And their, their most high-profile leader has left their party and is starting a new party of his own, apparently. Uh, so Nigel Farage is starting a party called the Brexit Party uh, because he's he he the UKIP is getting too racist even for him, apparently. But it just speaks to this kind of um, this kind of lack of ability to do politics, mm. like in the everyday sense, yeah. to draft draft either pieces mm. of legislation or draft workable uh, policies or draft evidence based reports. And there's a whole kind of army of civil mm. service officers who are doing all of this mm. kind of behind the scenes mm. who have you know hundreds of thousands millions of pages of typed work mm. all of this research they've done mm. um discussions that they've had plans they've put in place and kind of suggestions mm. to the government and to mps and yet what we get is parliament taking back control from the government the Speaker of the House of Commons having to say, no, you can't debate the same piece of legislation for a third time. Mm. You, you know, the it seems like there's a real disconnect here between what could be done, mm. which is like sitting down around a table mm. and mm. doing a bit mm. of negotiating, and what is being done, which is, as far as I can tell... A weird bit of really boring mm. theater. There's, I think there's a parallel disconnect as well because on the one hand, in everyday conversation, Brexit is the sort of at once the butt of every joke and the elephant in every room, right? So, in every conversation I've had in classrooms, outside of classrooms, with friends, with colleagues, on the streets, in supermarkets you sort of wait until someone brings up Brexit and then everybody laughs because that's the thing you're not supposed to name, as it were. Uh, <laughs> so you, so you have that... You have that... And, and as, a, as a very self-consciously British attempt to generate humour out of something that is really stressful and really fatiguing. You know, we, we've, we've spoken... Uh, you and I have spoken before about the sense of exhaustion that one, one experiences from and as a result of this constant uncertainty that we are all living through. So that, that is all very real and all very true and important. But equally, on the other hand, you you know, for the last few months now, BBC is broadcasting significant parts of its news programmes from outside Parliament. And there is what seems to me a pretty constant presence of protesters, both leave, pro-leave and pro-remain protesters. Um, We've had uh, one of the largest ever marches, certainly in recent British history, uh, last Saturday when when a, a close to a million people apparently marched through through the streets of London. We've had the fastest ever, uh, largest ever now petition uh, for uh, for change, uh, 
to ask asking the government to revoke Article 50, which would be essentially cancelling Brexit. Close to six million people have signed that. So you have, I guess, on the one hand, this really important and really uh, uh, what's the word accurate sense of exhaustion and and fatigue, marked with a contradictory but equally real unprecedented level of engagement with politics, both the nitty-gritty politics of sort of debates in Parliament and parliamentary procedures, but also activist politics in terms of starting conversations, having petitions, going on marches, demonstrations, all of those things. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to me how these two things are happening at the same time as equal and opposite reactions to the continuing uncertainty. Yeah, there's also, there's the uncertainty and then there's also this, the, what's happening as well, which is that people are continuing to live their lives at the same time. Yeah. So I don't know if you watch um, John Harris's videos on The Guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, I highly recommend them. We'll mm-hmm. put a link in the, uh, in the blurb sure. this week. Um, he's, uh, he was originally actually a music journalist mm. uh, from mm. the north of England okay. and a couple of years ago he started he started wandering around the mm. UK with a camera guy and he makes these segments and it's called mm. Anywhere But Westminster and he felt like most of the kind of professional journalism mm. that was happening mm. in the UK was focused on London mm. and in fact, a lot of the sort of electoral power was held outside of London, and mm. so he was really interested mm-hmm. in uh, examining this mm. discursive gap mm. between mainstream media and mm-hmm. people's mm-hmm. lives outside mm-hmm. of London. And it's really fascinating. His videos are extremely well edited. Mm. Um, they're really uh, thought-provoking, I think, in terms of sort of mainstream discourse. Mm-hmm. He gets the closest to thinking critically in a sort of critical theory mm. sense about uh, what it means to be British and how mm-hmm. how people engage with government mm. and, and how we know what we know. And he's been wandering around talking to people about Brexit. He did a half hour, a whole half hour video on Northern Ireland and he went around the border. Mm. But he also recently was in Wigan and he spent some time in a, it's a, a, a soup kitchen, but also a, a sustainability organization that take food waste and mm. turn it into uh, affordable or free food for people who need it. And also provides a kind mm. of uh, community space for mm. people to work um, mm. and volunteer. Mm. And he spent a lot of time with uh, just kind of a random collection of people. Mm. He talks to people in the street, mm. but he also ends up in different organizations and, and um, different places. And it gives a real sense of how people feel about Brexit mm. and the sort of the contradictions. He's interested in contradictions. People whose lives, you know, would suggest that they should vote a certain mm. way and they don't vote that way. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he gives those people a, a voice, really. Mm. He doesn't really, mm. he doesn't really judge. Mm. Um, but also about how people are, you know, fully aware of the fact that Brit- most of most of Britain and Northern Ireland are dealing with the fallout of austerity. They are continuing mm. to live with very real economic consequences of 
conservative government policy mm. over the last nine years um, and how they're continuing to kind of organize in their communities around issues that aren't about Brexit. Mm. And they still also talk about Brexit mm. and it's part of the conversation, but it's also not. Mm. And he is sort of drawing attention back to this fact that people are continuing to make plans, they're continuing mm. to live their lives, they're continuing to sort of do what they're doing and how they're doing it with this mm. sort of specter of Brexit mm. sort of hanging over mm -hmm. everything. And it's really, it's difficult to conceptualize theoretically, mm -hmm. um, but I think it is important to kind of talk about so that we don't fetishize yeah. what's happening in Westminster right now. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, and I think it's, you know, we, many of us have friends who are perhaps more immediately made more immediately precarious than we are by Brexit if you're an EU citizen as opposed to a British citizen or an American citizen I guess if you're an American citizen it, your precarity, your precarity, is, precarity different. is different uh, either way whether 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 in the immediate certainly in the immediate sense uh, but even friends of ours who are more immediately precarious as a result of Brexit are carrying on with life, with the, you know, getting up, going to work, shopping, eating, living. Um, and it's sort of the, I guess, going back to our overarching theme of uncertainty, it's sort of the normalization of uncertainty, as it were, where Brexit becomes the sort of the constant white noise of the background, which is always there. Uh, but you make decisions and negotiations and life yeah. on top of it, over it, in spite of it. Yeah, and it's a less tangible uncertainty. So, of course, many people live mm. with a, a far more mm. kind of real and everyday mm -hmm. uncertainty. People who are unemployed or mm -hmm. who are precariously employed mm -hmm. or um, who live in poverty... Mm. Uh, for example, are people who uh, have a disability and are affected by, you know, Department of Work mm -hmm. and Pensions mm -hmm. changes, and you know, think so. There are people whose whose daily lives are more uncertain in kind of practical ways mm. um, and quite immediate life and death ways. Mm. There's an existential uncertainty to mm. this because, in a sense, it's like climate change. You mm -hmm. can't you can't feel a sort of um, life-changing effect in a moment mm. but you know that there is something mm. there is something that will happen at some mm. point in the future but it's happening at so many different scales mm -hmm. and in so many different mm. corners that you don't have access mm. to mm -hmm. and there's so much of the kind of like mm. Rumsfeld mm. unknown unknowns that you can't mm. reasonably plan for it no. in any kind of logical or rational mm, way mm. which comes back to your uh disinterest in learning information because the information you learn will become obsolete by the time you learn it yeah um it, I'm, I'm interested you mentioned scale i'm interested in the spatiality of the discourse as well it's like some of the commonest metaphors for brexit or, or, or the way it's been dealt with has been things like the the crash that's coming or the mm -hmm. or the wall that we're going to hit hit against or 
uh, maze delaying tactic being described as kicking the can down the road. That that metaphor comes up again and again, um, and it's it's interesting how all of those things imply a certain. By certain, I don't mean it will certainly happen, but sort of a definite. Um, sort of apocalyptic future that is coming. There's a reckoning. Yeah. And, and, reckoning. and it will, it's coming. Yeah. We might not know what is, what it is or when it will be here, but it will be here. Um, and in the meantime, we sort of carry on existing. Yeah. And doing all the things that we have to do in order to carry on existing with the knowledge that that reckoning is coming. Yeah. Yeah, and at a certain point, I mean, I, how long can a society sustain itself? How long can a community sustain itself? How long can a family sustain itself with with that kind of framework? Longer than we think, mm-hmm. I would would be my guess. I mean, this is a yeah. um, a completely relevant thing, but we uh, we this call back to an earlier episode. We've done episodes on on demonetization in India. Yeah. And for those of you who didn't listen to that episode, demonetization was when the Indian government decided overnight that money isn't money anymore. Yeah. And suddenly people... They shouldn't laugh. It's awful. It's, it's, it's awful. It's absolutely horrific. Yeah. Um, but it is also completely ridiculous um, where people just suddenly had no money. Yeah. And there were queues outside um, cash machines and outside banks because you were limited as to how much money you could take out. Yeah. And I remember thinking at the time, and the longer I go on, longer it has gone on, the more I think I wonder this. This is also an India where lynchings are not rare, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, Muslims have been accused of eating beef and then have been killed. Doctors yeah. who may or may not have been negligent in their duties have been attacked and killed in some cases. Um, you know, there were there were there's a, a new phenomenon called WhatsApp murders, where rumors about kidnapping, child kidnapping gets spread across WhatsApp and then strangers get lynched mm-hmm. because of those rumors. So violence is just under the surface in a whole ho- whole range of different ways. Except there wasn't a single instance of a bank being attacked. In all the, you know, people, literally people dying while queuing outside a bank, mm-hmm. waiting for their money. And somehow that level of immediate uncertainty of I don't know where I'm going to pay rent from because the money that I thought I had in the bank the government has literally taken away and people acquiesced. Yeah. And it's it's I guess that the the ability we have as a species to make do and mend, to say to normalize that we know the reckoning is coming, but we won't think of it. It'll be okay. Yeah. Or it'll not be okay, but we won't think of it. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah, it is. I mean, his, historical precedents um, are not good. Uh, the, if if we were to think of now as being, you know, the, the kind of 20th century precedent as being the 1930s, the 40s weren't great. 
either. So, you know, we're looking at another 20 years of not good stuff. Did you see the... There's also the plague. Did you see the Boris Johnson uh, headline where he evoked the spirit of Moses saying that yes. May should ask, should tell the EU, let us go? Yes. Without realizing that, that that was followed by 40 years in the wilderness. Yep. But it, again, we have these sort of We've, we've alluded to this theory in the past and indeed in this episode. Um, Stuart Hall yes. said one of the ways in which politics works in the current neoliberal moment, uh, if indeed this is a neoliberal moment, who knows, uh, <laughs> is words get evacuated of meaning. Yeah. And you have these, these soundbite headlines such as taking back control or UK's Independence Day or make America great again or um, a whole host of different things um, all of which mean nothing and but but can be used in order to either generate actual support or generate quiet acquiescence Mm -hmm. both of those things yeah, or working in the same direction. Yeah, or you know, generate, generate organized chaos and, um, you know, violence. State coordinated, mm. mm. seemingly random violence. Mm. I guess I mean, in in some senses, what we're working with. I've just remembered the chasm of distrust. <laughs> Liam Fox's chasm yeah. of distrust. Yes. Um, because there was no no distrust before in the government at all. Um, and I, I guess one of the one of the ways in which uncertainty gets co-opted and used in in terms of hegemonic forces is, I mean, it's not unlike racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. You know, it's scapegoating, right? So it the the structural role played by scapegoating. Don't don't criticize the government because those Muslims are coming and they will take your they will kill you. So we need to do what we are doing in order to um, in order to protect you. Is is the common logic that's running through all of this, right? Yeah. So the the fatigue that we are all experiencing becomes part of the toolkit that the government and the system uses in order to manufacture consent, to use to use Chomsky's term, where you end up going along with things because you are so tired of living with the uncertainty that and you, you are so convinced that the reckoning that is coming is coming, that there is no point in doing anything else. Yeah. And it's that completely fabricated sense of inevitability which is paradoxical because at the moment we have both the sense of inevitability and the sense of uncertainty yeah uh so we have sort of inevitable uncertainty or uncertain inevitability yeah something Um, is inevitable yeah but it's entirely uncertain what that something is do you want to predict what that something is oh my gosh where does brexit end where does brexit end I mean, Brexit means Brexit. 
It's revelation blue. It, it'll end at a wall. Don't mess A wall things. or a backstop. Yeah. Where the my, one of my favorite metaphors is the we're in the wild west now, mm. evoking that sort of like mm. frontier, mm. that frontier mm. myth, mm. right? The frontier of democracy. I don't know. I to be honest, I have I have no idea what's going to happen. I just can't. I I can't really imagine what sort of reality all of the MPs are living in. Because it's not the reality we're living in, is it? Yeah. So, I mean... What do you think is going to happen? I must admit I'm more hopeful now than I was two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, We said earlier on about the difference between government and parliament in the British system. And things do seem to be making slightly more sense in terms of parliamentary debates now that parliament has taken control away from the government as it were what control means and how parliament is going to use it is still uncertain and there's still there is still the very real possibility that none of it gets decided ever when we end up in this hellish loop for years and years and years um but i don't see how if by brexit we mean that the specific act of Britain leaving the European Union. I don't see how that happens now without some form of a democratic exercise, whether it's a referendum or an election. Of course, democratic exercises often don't lead to any clearer message. Part of part of why everything is uncertain is that we have an electorate that is pretty clearly divided straight down the middle. Uh, the original referendum for leave past 52-48. It's probably somewhere close to 50-50 now, but who knows. And whatever happens, whether we remain, whether we leave, whether we have a deal, whether we have no deal, we'll still have to find, as a nation, we'll have to find a way of accommodating that that 50%. All those uncertainties having said, having it being true, I still don't see how we leave without some form of a democratic exercise now, which might mean the electorate demand a harder Brexit. It might mean the electorate demand a remain. We don't know. But I don't see how it happens without one of those two things. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Let us know what you think. Um, Next time we talk to you, we might know more, we might not. Yeah. Um, let us know your views. Uh, give us a rate on our review on iTunes. Um, otherwise, we'll see you next week. Be excellent to each other. Yeah. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.